0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. This week we are going to be talking about what our producer has euphemistically called recent developments in Russia. I'm very happy to be joined by Kadri Leek and Gustav Gresser from our wider Europe programme who are both sitting in Berlin at the moment. To help us make sense of what is going on in the great bear that lives on the eastern side of the European continent, where so much has been going on politically at the moment. Kadri, do you want to start by telling us what to make of both the constitutional and political announcements that have been coming out of Moscow in the last few weeks? You've just written a commentary called Will He Stay or Will He Go about Putin, which is where all these stories seem to start.
1: Yes, and uh, he will actually do both. He will leave his current role, but he doesn't disappear from the political scene. So my view is that the constitutional changes that Putin announced in his address to the parliament are designed to allow him to gradually leave. That means reconfiguring his role redistributing some of his functions, some to parliament, some to government, some to state council, basically dissolving the presidency at Russia, as Russia has has known it, and diversifying the system of power. Putin himself, though, will probably stay along, also around, also beyond 2024, probably as the head of the state council, carving out a niche to exercise power as the sort that he likes and and wants to be in, because he's bored with day-to-day running of affairs. To the extent he still does it, but his boredom is visible. I meet him now regularly once a year and you can see. But he doesn't, I think, dare to leave entirely. And not because he's afraid for his personal safety or something. I somehow have faith in Putin's system. I don't think it is in danger to President Putin's physical well-being. But I think he wants to be still capable of of influencing the system. In case it doesn't work as, as needed, he will still be there to help as and when needed. So that's, in my view, his plan.
0: So, Gustav, you've also been following this very closely, and there have been so many things happening in recent days. The whole government resigning, a new premier that very few people had heard of beforehand being installed, the parliament passing a bill on constitutional reform, and then just over the weekend, Putin's long-time influential aide, Vladimir Sukhov, resigning. Should we maybe take some of those things one by one and, and go through them?
2: Yes, I mean, Surkov seems to be a more short term issue because it's bound to Normandy, to the dealing in Ukraine. Um, Russian constitutional reshuffles and Putin's plans for sort of exiting his post but not exiting power are um, more long term arrangements. And um, just as a short term, comment, this reshuffling process is very long term and it hasn't excluded any other variant like, for example, Belarusian Union State. It would still fit into the current sort of constitutional amendment system. So I don't think we have all decisions on the table yet. I also don't think that we have all persons on the table yet that will be involved in this transition and we'll probably have to watch more long and closer.
1: Well, I am not a believer in the Belarusian project. I think it will continue its half-life for for decades to come, the way it has done in decades past. Uh, but as concerns personalities, yes. I think the new premier is a technical figure, at least for now. He is there to be a placeholder and offer some stable, but politically not meaningful presence that will allow the changes to to happen. If we read anything into his personality, then that would be a domestic message. He comes from tax office. He has a reputation as an efficient taxman. And that I would read as sending a message to domestic audience that we are planning to crack down on corruption. We are planning to collect taxes and so forth, because domestic demand for that has been there. And likewise, the new attorney general has reputation of someone who is not political and who actually wants to take cases and investigate them properly, unlike his predecessor, Yuri Chayka, who was also mired in corruption scandals. So you can see some of domestic messaging and answers to popular demand in Rose Appointments. But what you cannot see, Gustav is very right, you cannot see the figure of a future president. That might matter less now with risk institutional changes, but even so, people will be curious. And I think that person's name we do not yet know. And by we, I also include Putin. I don't think he knows that name yet either. And casting will probably start as soon as the changes have passed. So we should keep an eye on deputy prime ministers and and some other interesting figures.
0: You mentioned briefly this idea of of the Belarus situation, which is one of the possible ways that people talked about President Putin managing to to remain in power because he could create a new role as as head of the union state rather than just being uh, president of Russia. But this whole question of transitions of power is something which is, a real problem right across the post-Soviet space at the moment. Are there any other examples that Putin can draw on?
1: Many people mention uh, Nazarbayev, the long-time president of Kazakhstan, who has now stepped aside formally, but reserved him a powerful role. Political landscape in Moscow has also mentioned some... Other names in that context, such as Deng Xiaoping, after his formal retirement, but he he stayed an influential leader in China. I think that is probably quite relevant. Some others uh, have also mentioned Hayatollah Khomeini, Iranian revolutionary leader, became supreme leader. I think Deng Xiaoping is is, is better comparison, and. That is, of course, interesting in the sense that such a role has been completely absent in Russian political landscape throughout history. I cannot think of of any example that would be similar in Russia. In Russia, power holders have been lucky to escape their life. And that only started happening quite recently on the 20th century. So that will be a novelty and very interesting thing to follow. But I think It could work out. I find it feasible.
0: And what lessons do you think Putin is going to take from his own last experience? Because the last time he faced this dilemma, he he swapped roles with Dmitry Medvedev, who he's just sacked as prime minister. But what he managed to do was to more or less keep control of of the political agenda without sitting in the president's office while Medvedev was was president and he was prime minister.
1: I think Putin really... Want to leave. I don't think that these changes are done with an aim of of keeping power or increasing power. You know, I think Putin has learned from certain historical experiences, and that includes the experience of Leonid Brezhnev and his political legacy. So when he didn't move on his departure sooner, I was actually surprised because he must know what Brezhnev's rule uh, led to. Sometimes, of course, it happens that you you know uh, of bad examples, but you cannot help but repeating them.
0: And the bad example is what? There, there was stagnation during the Brezhnev era.
1: Yes. Stagnation uh, system got discredited, so forth. It lost all resilience and people lost faith in it. And I think the lesson is not lost on Putin. But, you know, there are other lessons that he has also learned but still keeps repeating the mistakes, like oil curse. I remember Putin saying on the record that it is not certain at all whether discovery of samotlar oil fields in the 1970s was a good thing for Soviet economy because it became too oil-dependent and we should avoid that trap now. But he hasn't managed. It's still oil-dependent. He knows that it's wrong, but he hasn't been able to do anything. But with the pressure problem, he at least seems to be trying.
0: So the two of you touched before on the fact that that Surkov is leaving, which is both relevant potentially because he's been the lead figure in terms of strategy on Ukraine for a long time, but also he's been less influential in recent years. But he was one of the kind of core ideologists of Putinism. It was Surkov who first coined this term of, of sovereign democracy. He is somebody who's, a, who's been a real innovator in terms of Russian political technology who does Putin rely on now that he, as he kind of thinks about these big things, in a way that he maybe once relied on Surkov? I don't
2: know if he's really looking for a new Surkov in that same role, because if I may coin sort of Surkovism is fake content and ideology and reshuffle people behind the scenes, and I don't know if I mean in, in Ukraine it has been proven that giant failure and I don't know what sort of in Putin's mind the legacy of Surkov is.
0: If you look at it from, from on Surkov's own terms, what things did you think he was trying to do which he's failed to do on, in Ukraine? Well, first of all, they tried to manage the country via sort of selective
2: corruption which passed the way to the Maidan revolution. And then they thought that pressure, external pressure might Will, will sort of crash the new government or move them into a submissive position, the more pressure there was, the more rebellious and the more resisting Kiev went. Then they thought they could mobilize in Ukraine resistance against the new government along linguistic lines. And languages proved to be a non-starter to, to really mobilize people because people, most of them, except for fringes on both sides, don't care. Then they bet on sort of their traditional allies that could not, not even not deliver some kind of victory in the last both presidential and parliamentary elections that proved to be even less potent to rally support uh, amongst the supportive groups they thought they would win, like the Russian-speaking majority in the country that was rather voting for Zelensky than for Boyko. So... number of miscalculations and attempts to sort of to work through individual people, corrupt them, tell them what to do, and insert the agenda via them. And and all these interlocutors proved to be unreliable, like Yanukovych, incapable, like Medvedchuk and Boyku. So at, at the end, they have a president they didn't reckon with that proved to be successful. And they have very little influence on him. So so here they are.
1: I think Sorkov was really successful managing the domestic scene in Russia and no one has been replacing him. For him, Ukraine was demotion after 2011 when uh, big anti-Putin protests happened and that was somehow seen as failure of political technologists. But there has been no one after him if you followed Russia was last summer, when lots of protests happened against elections in Moscow, or basically the manipulated landscape of elections, and protests in other parts of the country, I, I thought about it. Someone like Surkov, in his heyday, would have found these protests really easy to handle, to sidetrack, to neutralize, whatever. And now they handled it really clumsily. So to me, that was a sign that system is bleeding creativity and people. They cannot manage easy tasks they used to earlier. And in Ukraine, yes, Surkov handled it as political technologist and Russian MFA wanted to handle Ukraine as an international issue, so they always hated him and his take on the job. So I guess that if there was one institution in Moscow where champagne puddles were opened on Saturday, if anyone worked on Saturday, then that surely includes Russian MFA.
0: Kadri, you've been thinking a lot about the generational change in Russia. You wrote a fascinating paper looking at the next generation of Russian elites. What many people are wondering now is is... Whether this new generation that will ultimately gradually be taking over the levers of power as as Putin manages this succession is going to be very different from from the last one. Do you want to talk a bit about about what we can expect from the next generation?
1: Happily, that would be a long conversation. But I think actually... When it comes to foreign policy, as done in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, that takeover will be quite gradual. We will not see an overnight change. And the influence of Reese Young, the sort of influence they will exercise, will still very much depend on the leader on the top, because foreign policy will be set by president, maybe up to a point by the head of state council in the future. And it depends on that policy, which people are promoted and, and which not. And of course, the young generation, as all generation in all countries, includes people that could receive serve any any regime. I mean, any regime will find people to serve it among that generation. But well, yes, I, I managed to talk to quite a few of them. And the worldview is, is very down to earth. And the the take on the West is quite critical, in many ways more realistic than that of the predecessor, whose exposure to the West was much more limited and who viewed the West as a sort of wonderland in some ways. The younger ones know the West better are a lot more critical. They spot it when we don't behave the way we preach and we should be aware that they notice it and they charge it quite, quite harshly. And I don't think that we will have the sort of partnership with these people that we hope to have with Russia in 1990s, but it could be something different and maybe more realistic because the dreams of 1990s ultimately turned out to be empty.
0: So talking about this relationship with the West, there were two big things that happened in the last few weeks, uh, Gustave, One was in December 2019, there was a, the Normandy summit where Chancellor Merkel, President Macron, Ukraine's President Zelensky and, and President Putin came together in Paris under the framework of the Normandy format, which had been paused for three years. Why don't we talk a bit about what happened there? What were the expectations of that? Because uh, the French had high hopes of using this as part of the, the process of resetting relationships with Moscow?
2: The French president had very high expectations, but uh, if you ask the negotiators and interlocutors, uh, they were much more turned down. Sort of, it was a, a good thing that Zelensky and Putin meet finally, that sort of they see how... To deal with each other but otherwise in terms of substance there are still many obstacles and although the the summit of course produced results on top of course quite a large prison exchange which is always good it stayed vague on the other things so ceasefire is still a problem so there was a push for a new ceasefire by the beginning of the new year now what we see Uh, We already have 10 deaths this year, and there's continuous shooting and shelling pretty much along the same patterns we saw it for the last three years trench warfare. There is the sort of until the next meeting that is scheduled for April, which is, of course, very soon compared to earlier years. um, Ukraine should adapt a new special status law. So now there is a special status law for the occupied territories, it's the same that was created in 2014, and it is prolonged every year for one year. But uh, it was agreed that Ukraine will draft a more detailed and a more permanent special status law. Now, on that, actually, Zelensky tried to introduce a reform of local administration that many saw as a prelude to the special status law, and that saw a rearrangement of regional powers, stripping away Many powers or, uh, from the Oblast governors uh, indicating that he would make the DNR, LNR kind of special Oblasts and and Hans wants wanted sort of dist- this... Oblasts
0: are uh, administrative districts.
2: Yeah, it's like, it's, yes. So it's a bit less than Bundesland and a federal state. It's, a, it's an administrative district like uh, in Poland, or a county in the UK, or uh, Departement in France. So here's the reshuffling. Now, what I wanted to say is that uh, the Zelensky's reform didn't pass parliament. There were a lot of local governors that have allies in parliament that stopped it and and Zelensky's own party was to a largest way voting against it because they have also local interests. Which is typical for Ukraine, you have a very vivid and vibrant debate, but which is of course then when we come to the Normandy summit, Zelensky is not a very good explainer domestically. And even with this Normandy summit there was at least on the Ukrainian side you had much more speculation than substance on what will happen there and in in kind of this climate of anxiousness and nervosity where people are more guessing than really debating what will happen this this measure will be interesting to say the least the other thing of course we have been alluding to Surkov before and uh, there was another reshuffle in Russia a few days before sukov left kozak was uh, was transferred from the he was deputy prime minister before, from the government to the presidential administration. And of course, now there are rumors that Kozak might replace Surkov as the chief negotiator for Ukraine. And Zelensky seemed to have reached out to Kozak sometimes before. Uh, they might come along better than Surkov and Zelensky. So we have some positive,
0: some negative signs, and we'll see. So the other big change, the thing that happened in December, was there was a deferral of the finalization of Nord Stream two. Do you want to explain that, yep. one of you? Sort of the Nord Stream two pipeline was running
2: into, into the uh, sort of, was behind shuttle in constructing, because the sort of the final path of where the pipeline would be laid in which uh, exclusive economic zone wasn't clear, and especially the path around Bornholm and the Danish island in the the Baltic Sea, hence uh, the pipeline will be opened late. And because it will be opened late, it will fall under the jurisdiction of the amended energy package. So under the new rules that were agreed in in February last year, which will, of course, by the European Union. This was sort of the compromise solution that uh, when you remember last February, when there was a quite of an attention on, there was a commission proposal to extend the the jurisdiction of EU Third Energy Packers to offshore pipelines that run through the exclusive economic zones of of the EU and sort of enter the EU at some point. And the Germans tried tried to block it. The French were sort of in the middle and sometimes sided with the Eastern Europeans, sometimes with the Germans, and then they reached a compromise. And part of the compromise package that the extended powers of the EU commissions would be delayed. And now that the pipeline is delayed as well, this window of opportunity couldn't be useful north to complete Northstream two, but Northstream two will sort of the new rules will apply for Room two, and that of course will change the the nature and substance for the delivery contracts for Gazprom f- uh, to use the pipeline, and it has sort of consequences for Gastron's market position and liability rules, etc. Quite actually complicated matter, but nevertheless it was. Certainly a blow to to Gazprom itself. And probably for that reason, or partly influenced by that, Russia struck a five-year gas deal with Ukraine before the end of the, of the last year. And we will have, at least for these five years, uh, a, a, a gas transit agreement through Ukraine, which is uh, positive. And it was basically uncertain for
0: a very long time whether there will be one or or. So the, the worry that people had in Ukraine was that Nord Stream 2 would allow Russia yep. to route around Ukraine and to deprive yes. it of its transit fees. It's not only the transit
2: fees. The thing is that as long as Russia needs Ukraine for, for transit, for its own well-being, because you want to sell the gas, it's a kind of insurance policy. So, yeah, you can't basically dismiss the country as, as, as such because you still need it. Uh, the same goes for Belarus and, and the Yamal transit. So they they both were very anxiously looking at Nord Stream two, uh, but we have now Nord Stream two delay. So and the sort of. Legal insecurity that Gazprom faces with the contract.
0: And also, the, the sanctions um, are starting to take effect on uh, a number yes. of the companies that were involved. So, some of them uh, have already yes. withdrawn. The,
2: the American secondary sanctions, uh, here also, basically, there was decision, Congress... Congress' decision to, to impose these sanctions is quite old, but the Trump administration basically deferred the sanctions quite some time. So uh, so they're now finally entering into force and it will make the maintenance. Also, the pipeline probably will be finished. The maintenance of the pipeline will be the tricky thing because there are very few companies that can repair, maintain and check these undersea pipelines. And if they're sanctioned for doing so and they have all Business in the Gulf of Mexico or now new oil fields may be explored in Alaska, etc., uh, gas fields. So they will uh, have difficulties enter the North American market if they service this pipeline. And so they will have second thoughts. And that will make Nord Stream 2 kind of an unreliable asset because in, as the pipeline will run older and will sort of require maintenance... The
0: the situation will be tricky. So we're coming to the end of our period now. Um, What I would love to end with, maybe Kadri, is to, to tell us what we can expect of Russia in foreign policy over the next five years. Do you think that the fact that all these transitions are taking place is going to lead to a calmer, more straightforward, easier interlocutor in Moscow, or is it going to lead to more activism... Russia getting involved in more parts of the world in the way that it has in Syria and Libya more recently?
1: I don't think it will have any big impact. I'm I'm not a believer in compensation of domestic policy by launching big foreign policy initiatives when it comes to Russia. I have always noticed that Russia's big foreign endeavours have always had foreign policy-related reasoning behind them. So, I do not think it will necessarily impact foreign policy very much at all. but foreign policy change seems to be happening as well. It remains to be seen, yeah whether Kazakh really replaces surkov and and what that will mean in the context of, of Donbass. Donbas. It might mean something it it might all result in in nothing, as these initiatives sometimes already have done. But in any case, I think that Russia has just got a lot more interesting. And um, that's good news for people like us.
0: And it means we're going to have to do many more podcasts on Russia in the months ahead. So we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Gustav, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? If I'm allowed to come forward with the German language
2: book, um, it's... Brennender Enzian, die Operationsplanung der NATO für Österreich und Norditalien 1951 bis 1960. It's about NATO's defense plans and military operational plans uh, in northern Italy and Austria during the 50s and and early 60s. And it's quite interesting. uh, Beyond the military nerd thing. uh, Because you had sort of Trieste crisis, Yugoslavia, Tito, Stalin split, uh, Austrian independence. A declaration of neutrality that then absorbed into changing military structures and operational plannings, and so the sort of mobile phase of the Cold War. And
0: interesting. What about you, Kadri?
1: Well, I actually, lately, I have been reading books that are not political. I've been reading memoirs of two neurosurgeons, Henry Marsh, who uh, I think he's retired now, but he worked in London. And Paul Kalaniti, who passed away, but he used to work in in California. And, yeah, neurosurgeons, they are the people who operate on your brain, should you ever need it, which I hope you will not. Uh, But it's, in my mind, it becomes linked to politics in a strange way. I, I think of many politicians, prime ministers... And I'm happy that they are merely prime ministers and not brain surgeons or airline pilots or something. If I think of prime ministers I know, and who of them would I trust to operate in me? I think really Angela Merkel might pass, others, Mm-mm. no.
0: And to end, I would like to recommend a book that I haven't yet opened, but it looks absolutely fascinating. It's called Traditions and Trends in Global Environmental Politics, International Relations in the Earth which is an edited volume by Olaf Corrie and Hayley Stevenson. And what they're trying to do is to answer a big question, which is how a divided world can share a single planet. They try and look at how we can learn from international relations and geopolitics, both to see how great power divided world can deal with the climate crisis, but also how environmental changes and challenges are changing geopolitics itself. So this brings our podcast to an end. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do check out the page for the podcast, which is www.ecfr.eu/podcast, where we will put up links to all the publications that we've mentioned. And do let us know if you've enjoyed the podcast by giving us a rating or review on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast. Or you can always write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu with any comments or suggestions. But for now, from Gustav Gressel, Kadri Leek, and Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Hannah Zofi Baumann, and our editor is Marlene Riegel. Thank you very much, everyone.